I well remember the meeting at Carmyle. As most of you all know, I was Minister of Carmyle and Kemu and Mount Vernon. Elizabeth and I were there from 1989 to 1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1999-1
familiar. Even I'm aware over these last 18 months, you know, you get familiar to even this. You'd hardly think that'd be possible. If I'd said a year and a half ago, we were going to end up being spread out like this, a number of us weren't going to be here, and a whole host of us, we're all going to have to sit, well, you're going to have to sit with masks on, but I thought, what's that about? And yet almost we become comfortable with that, because it's what we're used to. And so we can have and that experience in Carmyle and elsewhere. That experience, in many ways, provides a good insight into understandably how the people of Israel, these exiles, let's be honest, they had just returned from being in exile. They had had a journey, not on planes and the comfort of cars or modern transport. They'd had to journey as a pilgrim people back from Babylon to Judea, to Israel, to the land of their forefathers. They would still be living under the cloud, not just of the dust of their journey, but the cloud of everything that had happened two generations before. And remember, this was two generations before. The stories of the disaster that had been fallen Jerusalem. The stories of the calamities that had befallen the people of Israel as they were killed or taken into exile. The trial of those years. Yes, there was Daniel and others who in many ways did well under the Babylonian exile, but many others, of course, hadn't and had never returned home. Indeed, there would be people who would born and die and never see home. And so they arrived back And then what happens? Well, if you want to flick back in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, because that's the historical, as I said last Sunday, that's the historical comment. And we saw last Sunday how an edict was read, provision was made under King Cyrus, and the people returned. And the people did. In Ezra chapter 3, they gathered together for a service where the foundations are laid, a foundation stone. Not actually sure here if there's one, but there was, for instance, a Carmel foundation stone uh, at the bottom of the front of, of the church when it was laid in 1901, I think it was. I think that's when it was laid. And, and, and so I found a service is laid. So Ezra chapter 3. And we'll just read there when the build is verse 10. Sorry, Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as described by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He, His good, His love towards Israel endures forever. Just a little aside here, see how the Psalms were already, the Psalms of David were already being incorporated in the worship of God and in the life of Israel. Then we read, and all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. There was mixed emotions. Commentators have described that when the foundations were laid, it became very obvious that what was going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem wasn't, and here's a kind of modern illustration, wasn't a Glasgow cathedral, but with no disrespect to anybody who's ever worshipped one, but basically a kind of mission hall. 
That's what was going to be laid. Yes, it was going to carry out the functions of the temple, but it certainly wasn't going to have the glory of Solomon's temple. If Solomon's temple had survived, it would have been one of the great wonders of the ancient world, but it had long gone. And what was being rebuilt was effectively, basically, a kind of big hall. Yes, internally it was to be furnished as the temple, but it was nothing like the temple. And so there were those of the former situation who wept, wept with sorrow of what had happened. Uh, the, the, the calamity, I don't think we can really understand, unless, of course, one day, God forbid this, we ever turned up, this building had burnt, been burnt down. But the calamity of seeing the house of the Lord destroyed. And then knowing that what was being rebuilt was certainly nothing on par with Solomon's temple. And there were others, of course, who were simply glad that we're getting on with the work. And let's be honest, who cares what it looks like as long as it's the Lord's house and the Lord's inhabiting it? That's what's important. And so there was mixed emotions. And then later on in chapter 4, we read, and there's a big story there which we don't have time to go into, but those round about didn't like to see what God was doing, were stirred up in opposition against it. And we read that in verse 20, 23 of chapter 4, as soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shemeshai, the secretary of their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop the work. Thus the work of the house of God in Jerusalem came to standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then we read in chapter 5 that that's when Haggai gets up and gives his prophecy. And so there was a whole host of reasons why it wasn't the right time. And we saw that last Sunday. The time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. And there are many reasons today. Well, we're not talking, obviously, about building, although we are getting building work done here. The managers have agreed to spend 25000 on essential repairs to the roof because, as you can see up there and elsewhere, it's needing it. But nonetheless, primarily our concern today is not building or doing up this building, but ensuring the work of the Lord is built up. And there's always reasons. And I find this in my own heart. I'm going to get upset now. I can think of things that we were able to do the Advent Supper, the place packed for events during 20, the 2010s. And I have to say, I'm not sure in the 2020s we'll see those days again. And it's easy for us to look back, particular, and say, oh, but the former days. But the former days were past. And the challenge that was given to Israel and to us, to the church of Jesus Christ today, is to be willing to accept that things are different. Let me read again, back to Haggai in chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, in the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltier, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the remnant of the people, and ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, and work, for I am with you. Yes, the Lord knows what had been lost. The Lord knows the sorrow, perhaps, of some people's hearts. And the fears and concerns that were abroad in the land from enemies without and fears and struggles within. And the things that can so easily make us think, hmm, what's the shame? But the prophet brings the word of the Lord saying, yes, that's the situation. 
but be strong, for I am with you. And that's a note that surely we all need to hang on to in these days, not just within our own little congregation, but up and down our land. Often we hear people talk about the new normal in the light of all that's happened in the last 18 months. Times have changed, and some things may well never be completely the same as we're used to in the past. But of course, and you good folks testify that to me every Sunday as I see you gathered here. Life does go on. We learn to work in and through the challenges. Indeed, that's the sign of an active spirit and mind, is that we deal with things and we don't become, as the disciples were, locked down with fear. For God's perfect love casts out all fear. And the promise given was that God was with them. Notice what it says in verse 5. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear the God of the covenant. The God who makes promises. The God who keeps his word and who fulfills his promises in Jesus Christ. The God who said in Jesus Christ at the very end of Jesus' earthly ministry, what does he say? Lo, and I'm using the older versions here, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That promise that God by his spirit dwells within the life of his people. And through all the changing scenes and circumstances of life, he remains with us and faithful to his promises. And so Haggai had to bring that word of assurance. Yes, things were difficult. Things were challenging. But it was time to accept that things were different and move on. But notice also there was to be confidence in the future. Verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Now, in the first hearing of that, for the people who heard the prophecy, they must have thought, well, Haggai is really kind of living in dreamland. Because there's no way that this present house is going to look better than Solomon's temple. The next temple that was built after this temple, built in Haggai's time, was destroyed, was eventually the temple of King Herod. And it was impressive. It did look the part. But it was built with blood money. It was built with having been Herod being bribed by the Romans and him himself bribing other people in order to secure the resources. And we only need to look at the Gospels and to see how Jesus confronted that people had made the house of prayer into a den of thieves. And it became a bastion, not of true faith in the living God, but a religion that was dead and was controlling and was completely contrary to the life of the Spirit that God had offered in his word. And it was destroyed by the Romans. It's gone. And so when the Lord brings this word of promise through Haggai, he's not talking about a building in that type of way. 
but rather he's talking about the building of God's people. And I'm conscious, people might just think, you know, how do you make a jump from talking about a temple that was, you know, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus and start talking about the church? So let's turn to the New Testament. So if you keep your finger, dare I say, turn down the page in Haggai, because if you lose Haggai, you may not get him very quickly. So if you <laughs> turn down the page, you're allowed to do that. Um, and then turn to the New Testament and to Corinthians, the first letter of Corinthians. And the New Testament, and remember Jesus speaks of the temple being destroyed as well. So the New Testament is not speaking about the physical temple in Jerusalem. But look at what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And verse 10. Yes. And then verse 16. Look what Paul says there. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Remember he's talking to Christians who are in Corinth. I laid a foundation as a wise building. Someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's, each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames and then this bit don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple Paul he is obviously using the picture language, the metaphor of a building. But he's not talking about building a physical church, a kirk in the middle of Corinth. He's talking about building up the people of God, the foundation being Jesus Christ. And he tells us that we ourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in our midst. And then moving on to Ephesians and perhaps more familiar verses in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. And having spoken about how in Jesus Christ the division between Jew and Gentile was broken down and God's purpose is to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, he says this in verse 19 of First Corinthians of, of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. He writes this, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This building, this metaphor being used to describe the people of God, being built together. And then lastly, if we think this is just Paul with his own angst or angle, um, turn to first letter of Peter. And again, to verses that some of us may be more familiar with. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2, reading from verse 4, again, Peter's plea to the Christians and what it means to be in Christ. 
And he says this in verse 4, chapter 2, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house, are built into a temple of the Spirit to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You also, like living stones, are being built into a temple of the Spirit. And so, back to Haggai. The promise being given here in a little while, once more shake the heavens and the earth. Back to Haggai 2, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. That promise is a promise about the church. Yes, God was going to inhabit the temple built in Jerusalem. God was going to be there. But the history of Israel was that very quickly, even these zealous souls who built the temple back in Haggai's day were to be replaced by those who were losing sight of God. And all sorts of problems began to emerge. Just read the last prophet of the Old Testament, Malachi, for his words of challenge to them. People do not change, but the Lord endures forever. And what is his delight? His delight is to be in the midst of his people. Back to Genesis, the Lord our God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And who's he looking for? A giraffe or an elephant or a monkey or a penguin. No, he's looking for us, for human beings. And his desire is to be with us, to inhabit us. The promise of Jesus that he would ask the Father and the Father would send the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He comes to live within us and to take from Jesus and make him known to us. He breathed on the disciples, received the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost the Spirit came down upon this bunch, let's be honest, of pretty failed people and yet they were transformed and empowered and human history has never been the same. God in the midst of his people. That is the church. That is the building for his glory. The one who is the desire of all the nations, Jesus Christ, the king and cornerstone of the church. He is glorified when his people honor him and live in the spirit with him. And all the resources, yes, materially as well as spiritually, are provided so that God's work can be done in God's way and in God's timing. And that is not affected by COVID or by anything else. Jesus said he would build his church and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And I know in your hearts this morning, and I trust anyway that in your hearts you believe that, that yes, there are challenges and things aren't necessarily going to be the same. And it's going to take some creative thinking to work about the future. And yes, some accoutrements. The temple in Jerusalem had many accoutrements to its building that made it look the part. But remember in Ezekiel, it was often in those hidden rooms and secret chambers and wee towers up with some back stairs. Then all sorts of idolatrous things took place. Those accoutrements were done away. God is often clearing away a lot of the things that we add on to the church. Don't mean our buildings, but what we think is important. Many things which are worthwhile, some things which are not and God perhaps is saying through this times let's just clear all of that let's end up with a mission hall and that's it 
doing what really is fundamental, which is fulfilling the command of Jesus to go and make disciples of all the nations. And this is a challenge, not just for the church, but for the arms of the church and various organizations to think through what that means in the days in which we live. And so as we draw to a close, we have to be willing to accept that things are different. We have to have confidence that, yes, the future will be different, but God's in it, and he's fulfilling his purposes. And lastly, we are willing to allow our own lives to be different. Notice what he says. Be strong and work. Do not fear. And in this place, I will grant peace. God's in the business of transforming lives. We sang a well-known song, didn't we, at the beginning of the service, Give Thanks with a Grateful Heart. And we sing what is by no means a new song nowadays. Look at what it says. Just hear again those words. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. And then listen to the verse, the refrain. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. You see, my friends, God's in the business of transformation. That's what needed to happen here. The people need to be transformed from within in order that the things from the past and the fears of the present would be removed and they were ready for the work. We preach a gospel of transformation. The Jesus Christ who says, I am the anyone who believes in him is a new creation. The God who says, I behold, I make all things new. And yet the reality is, sadly, even within the life of the church and even with things that often the church does, sometimes in the community, sometimes within the wider world, sometimes amongst ourselves, we actually say to the weak, that's okay. We understand. We are here for you. And just you, you're okay. And we don't see a transformation. We say to those who are poor, perhaps materially, the church has spent millions caring for the poor in the world. We say rightly so. Has it really made that much difference? Have we really challenged the things that transform communities and societies and people and enable them to say, let the poor say I am rich? And to those who are spiritually poor, perhaps sometimes the church has preached a gospel of impoverishment. Let's just remain the way we are, with religion, with faith added on as a crutch to help us struggle with the realities of life. No wonder people walk by and say, well, that's Christianity. It's a crutch that keeps you going in the state you're in where you can keep it. No wonder people say that. The gospel is about change. The God we believe in is dynamic. The weak say, I am strong. The poor say, I am rich. Where is that transformation within our contemporary society? Is it seen in the church? So often it's not. And as that dear lady all those years ago who I trust is now in glory, I don't mean I want her away, but I, you know, she was an age where but now she would be in glory. And she was willing that day to get up and say, I was wrong and we should have done it. And now it is the time. So God challenges all of us. To say, yes, we didn't always get it right. 
And yes, we got carried away with the accoutrements. And yes, with the need of this and that and the other. But actually, we neglected the thing most needful. Transformed lives. Transformed by the power of God. For the glory of God. That's the challenge of Haggai to the people long ago. But that's also the challenge of Haggai to us and to the church of Jesus Christ in our land today. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. Let's conclude our worship by singing together this great final hymn. And I remember with a company of folks from the Scottish Bible Society standing in that mighty Colosseum in Ephesus, a ruin of a city that once was a port is now far from the sea. And singing that hymn, fading as the worldlings pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. We thank you, O oh God, that we are involved in the greatest building project the world has ever seen. The building of the church of God. The bringing together of the people of God. The maturing of the bride of Christ. And so we thank you for that great calling. We thank you for your work of grace that enables us to come. We thank you for the power of the Spirit to transform so that the weak can say they are strong and the poor can say that they are rich. Release that transforming power in and through your church in our land this day we pray and begin that work of renewal in our own lives, we ask. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father, and the fellowship and transforming power and presence of the Holy Spirit not only rest upon us, but continue to dwell within us this day and forevermore. Amen.